Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, Episode 9. The site headquarters was a five-storey vision of granite in the Dresden style, from which the flags flew and telegraphical aerials emerged, rather like the quills of a porcupine. Already the hair had been shaved off it, leaving that ugly cut known in common circles as the number one. The building's main entrance was guarded by a single man built like a pug. Have you had a lot of thefts here recently? Cornucope asked, gesturing at the guard as they passed him by. Their boots clattered with heavy reverberation in the polished marble corridor. It is better to be safe than sorrowful, yeah? Moments later, they were left in a reception chamber. Cornucope felt uncomfortable. He stepped outside the chamber and asked a passing man if there were lavatorial facilities nearby. The man pointed to a corridor. Cornucope followed the corridor to find three doors, two ordinary, one made of polished wood, and seeing that this was the superior door, he decided it must lead to the closet for gentlemen and nobility. Inside, he found a room of white porcelain, decorated with images of German soldiers. A single man stood before a urinal. He turned, saw Cornucope, then looked down and cursed. Now look what you have made me do. Who are you, huh? You should not be here. This closet is not for you. I'm Cornucope Weatherby, and I'm a guest of Count von Flugzeug, who's an old friend of mine. And you are? The red-faced old man took a cloth and wiped his trousers, then stamped off, trying to conceal his face by scratching his mutton-chop whiskers. Cornucope shrugged, then relieved himself. Fifteen minutes later, he and Eustacia sat in a top-floor suite filled with chaise longue, Georgian desks and butterfly clocks, the aroma of schnapps and tea filling the air, along with the sound of a tea-party orchestra playing from a scratchy 78 disc. It's good to see you again, said the Count, resplendent in full uniform. He seemed relaxed. Cornucope relaxed in response, replying, You too. My, but there is a tremendous amount of work going on outside. You have many orders to fill, no doubt. Ah, many orders. Was there anything I could help you with? Cornucope sat upright and began explaining the hairy situation. Then the gist of Christopher's plan. He concluded, we need to use a large number of aerial vehicles to drop the radioactive substances upon the city. And naturally, I thought of you first. He glanced down at his fingernails, smiled, then added, I am certain there'd be a great deal of money in it for the Blue Blitzen Zeppelin Corporation. I'll consider your offer, the Count replied, pouring himself more tea. You believe then that the British government would consider your plan? My dear chap, I'm a member of the Suicide Club. We are the foremost explorers, geographers and all-round cultural experts in this country. Indeed, the whole empire. I personally have the ear of Lord Blantubble, the Foreign Secretary. Yes, you do, don't you? The Count's gaze defocused for a few moments, as if he had floated away in reverie. 
Then he said, I'm interested. Tell me, Konyukop, do you have any idea what's caused this sudden hairiness? Not a clue. None of your scientist people have been in touch? Konyukop shook his head. The nation's baffled. Says so in the Times. The Count nodded. Let's go to the office where we can set down a few ideas for terms and conditions. This way, please. The office was a cavernous room on the floor below. Great tables covered with papers lay everywhere. And there were machines, too, flickering with lamps. The place was busy with men and women and a few armed guards, Cornucope noted. On one side, windows let in afternoon sunlight, while on the other side, paintings of old men had been hung. The largest painting was of the red-faced old man. Who's that? asked Cornucope. That is the Kaiser, the Count replied. Cornucope gasped. The Kaiser is in Britain, in this building? At once, all the guards lowered their bazookettes and pointed them at Cornucope. Eustatia squealed and clung on to him. The Count, white-faced, said, What do you mean in this building? I saw him in the lavatorial facilities. Silence. Everybody in the room stared at him. Then the Count turned and waved his hands in the air. Guards, remain where you are. Everyone else out swiftly now. Cornucope stared open-mouthed. What's going on, von Flagzeug? But the Count said nothing until every last person had evacuated the room. I'm sorry, Vesaby, he said, but there's been an unfortunate incident. You possess knowledge we don't want your government to know. I should jolly well say so. What are you doing? Why all this fuss? I can't tell you that, but I can tell you that, alas, I'll have to detain you both. I'm so very sorry. Detain? Yes. Indefinitely. Indefinitely? The Count clicked his fingers, whereupon two guards strode up. To the Nibelungen chamber, give them lunch, then leave them. Yavor. And so Cornucope and Eustacia were marched to a dusty attic chamber, where they were left, locked inside. Lunch, it transpired, was casbrot and water. Supper, it later transpired, was mashed turnip and water. As night fell, Cornucope paced around their prison cell, unable to rest. At length, he asked Eustacia, Do you still have that monocular? She took it from her handbag and handed it to him. What are you going to do? He strode to the great skylight that filled a quarter of the attic ceiling. I'm not going to let these crowds get the better of me, dearest one. But we're trapped. I am a member of the Suicide Club, Eustacia sighed. Plan our escape, then. Cornucope, rattled at her lack of faith, peered south through the monocular. From his eyrie, he could see much of the central city. It may only have been a day since the hairy plague struck, he said, but I already espy a number of old Bismarckian steam engines floating through the air. But they're not on our side. Union jacks sticking out in all directions, dearest one. They're ours, all right, probably commandeered by the government. That will annoy the Count. Now, if I could just signal to one. 
Eustacia fumbled inside her handbag to produce a makeup mirror and a swan nightlight. Excellent. You are a marvel. You see, I know William Morris's code, used by lunar explorers and orbital junkies. The pilots of the Bismarckian steam engines will too. But if such an engine flies here, the Count will hear its pistons and shoot it down. Trust me, dearest one, a Britisher would do nothing so stupid. Using the nightlight and the mirror to mask it, Cornucope proceeded to send out a stream of heliographical-type signals. The nearest Bismarckian steam engine was a mile away, perhaps a mile and a half, floating over Regent's Park. It would be a tricky operation, and lucky if the flashing nightlight was seen, but with no other option. SOS, British gentleman and lady, captured by Krauts of the Blue Blitz and Zeppelin Corporation. Fly silent to help us. Britain in peril. SOS. This message he repeated until his arms were tired from holding up the nightlight and mirror. That's enough for tonight, Eustacia said. Maybe someone will come, he nodded. For a while, they lay on their steel frame beds in silence until Cornucope heard a curious pattering on the skylight, as of thrown gravel upon glass. It was midnight. He leapt up to see a silhouette blocking out the stars. Hot hair machinora, he said. Estacia got up, and in excitement they both stood by the window, peering out. The machinora was no more than forty yards away. Then a flashing message began, sent by automatic candle. Major Smothers, London Town Rescue Services. Open the skylight and we will send out a plank for you to walk. Hurry, getting breezy. Cornucope wrestled with the Wagnerian catch on the skylight and at last got it open with the aid of Eustacia's nail file. Cool night air blew into the attic. A plank with guide ropes emerged from the Machinora's wicker amplitude which, after a tense minute, touched the roof outside the skylight, leaving Cornucope and Eustacia with a heart-stopping leap from sill to plank. With the breeze blowing and a hundred-foot drop below them, it was terrifying. Cornucope made Eustacia go first, knowing her courage might fail her if she was left alone. But she made it, then hurried along the plank. He followed. They were free. Cornucope shook Major Smothers' hand. At your speediest to Downing Street, he said. Never mind the lateness of the hour. I have most urgent news for the cabinet. After a smooth flight, Major Smothers landed his machinora at the Whitehall end of Downing Street. And although it was now long after one in the morning, Cornucope was reassured to see lanthorns burning in many of Number 10's windows. Crisis meetings, the hirsute menace, he told Eustacia. A rotund policeman let him into the building, whereupon he collared the on-duty secretary, Flushman Kanker Hyphen. I need to speak to Lord Blandhubble at once, or the Prime Minister, very urgent. Flushman, who was known to Cornucope from their days at Beaton, was the model of Britisher calm. Dear chap, he said, have some tea and relax. 
It's only a bit of hair, nothing a good wash and cut. You do not understand, Cornucope said. The Kaiser, the Zeppelins. Yes, I shall go now and fetch the FS. The PM is up late in emergency meetings with chaps from the RI. Have a seat, do. Good to see you again, Mrs. Weatherby. Ten minutes later, Cornucope and Eustacia sat in Lord Blandhubble's office, a tray of tea and honey biscuits before them. Cornucope spent two minutes detailing what had happened that day, before saying, You have to get to Swiss Cottage soon, tonight. Once they know we've escaped, they will bundle the Kaiser into a horseless carriage and convey him to the nearest port. Blandhubble was a stern customer, who smoked a white clay pipe the size of a Cuban. Very likely they will, he said. I shall put operations in motion directly. But you've done great work for your country today, Weatherby. I'll see you're on the King's Christmas list for this. Uh, there is something else you should know. Christopher Furberley has a scheme to drop radioactivity over London from hundreds of aerial vehicles. Lord Blantubble raised one hand. Any scheme that involves aerial vehicles is not likely to find favour here, he said. With London Hairway, such travel will be for the government only, or the army, and quite unusual at that. Cornucope felt his hopes fade. But, but, my dear fellow, you simply don't understand the logistics. At the moment, it's difficult for us to get ten vehicles airborne, let alone Furberley's hundreds. There'll be doubtless a few private flying ventures. The journalists of Fleet Street are never less than ingenious, but nothing more. What about travel on the tube or railway? Eustacia asked. Some underground lines are clear, others are choked with hair. The railway network is reasonably clear, however, and may come into its own as our response to the crisis develops. But what shall we do now? Cornucope asked. Already he felt left out of events, left behind almost. Blandhubble puffed at his pipe, eyeing them both. Interesting times, he said, with a ghost of a smile. You know, Weatherby, the Germans were our number one suspect for all this hairiness. But it seems, from Count von Flugzeug's reaction, that they're not responsible. Yet, we have two other possible enemies. One is a Leninist cell based in Bloomsbury. Leninists? Yes, indeed. But for you, I think, the more important focus of attention should be Mr. Gandhi and Q. He glanced at Eustacia. You both could be of considerable importance to the government's operations. Uh, <clears throat> well, as a member of the Suicide Club, I am, of course, at Britain's disposal. <sighs> well, that goes without saying. But your wife? Eustacia fidgeted in her chair. "'What do you want me to do?' she asked. "'You'll know the reputation of Mr. Gandhi, of course. He's the very devil of a customer, and our covert chaps have been watching him for years. 
They lack the cultural side of things, however, which you, Mrs. Weatherby, do possess. I see. And our mission would be? To infiltrate Nohanda's Gandhi's home rule movement and discover if, if, if it's responsible for the hairy plague. Gandhi is an absolute cad. He only employs violent means, refusing all offers of negotiation. We expel him, of course, annually, it seems, but he keeps returning to our shores like a bad rupee. What do you think? Estatia thought for a few moments, then said, I accept. She smiled at Cornucope, then added, We accept. You've been indulging in Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, narrated by R.D. Watson. <laughs>